Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in the village of Coniston with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Good morning, Mark. Oh, it's great to be back. It's been a bit of a while and I'm pleased to be back, especially here. It has been a while. We had to cancel one of our episodes, or postpone it at least, because of bad weather. And then hot off the uh, week's worth of balmy weather, we're actually a little bit chilly and it's raining. (laughs) I can't believe it. Forecast for the last three days has been gorgeous sunshine. And today, yeah, it's raining. (laughs) It's raining. It's it's it's... haymaking time, you see, in the Lake District. So that's probably the clue. It's typical, isn't it? Yeah. Right, so we're in Coniston. And we are here for what reason, Mark? We do like to encounter significant people who are associated with the Lake District, both present and certainly from the past. And one of those, without any question, is John Ruskin. And we've got probably the one person who you could ever dream of to ask the questions about the great man himself, uh, Vicky Slow. So she's been here, a curator at the Ruskin Museum here for years, and really has a tremendous knowledge on his influence. So we'll explore that. John Ruskin, one of the great polymaths of the Victorian age, one of the great thinkers, a huge talent in many areas. What a monstrously influential man, and a, a huge mind and such a talent. Uh, and a great lover of mountains. He's got that famous quote, hasn't he? Oh yes, the, the beginning and the end of all the landscapes are mountains. And certainly here, you can't miss the old man. You can't, yeah, in the in the mist today, but uh, <laughs> yeah. he's up there, he's yeah. up there. But for now, Mark, where are we going today? Oh, well, we're heading from the museum, the Ruskin Museum in the village. Uh, we'll probably go under the Udale Fells uh, towards Yew Tree Farm uh, and then round by Monk Coniston to the head of the Lake Coniston. Sounds very interesting. It's not a, a huge ramble, is it? It's going to be a a nice little stroll resonant with history so let's go and meet Vicky Well, we've uh, made our way outside the museum and I'm delighted to say I have in my company Vicky Slow. It's gorgeous to see you, Vicky. I've heard a lot about you over the years. and uh, I'm not quite sure whether that's a good thing or not, but well, anyway. <laughs> I think it's not a bad thing. Now, how long have you been at this museum? I've been here for 26 years. Uh, I was raised in Hawkshead, which is not a million miles away from Coniston, um, on a farm. Um, I was at school in Ambleside and later um, at Troutbeck Bridge at the Lake School and went, wanted to go into museums from a very early age. Absolutely. Because the old Ruskin Museum was a huge fascination to me. I mean, that was the coin-in-the-slot turnstile that you had to... Uh, as a child climb over or through um, and also Kendall Museum. What really drew you to John Ruskin as a figure? I suppose it's because he thought so deeply and so widely about so many things. He was a polymath 
And I suppose when you're working in museums, and particularly small museums, you have to embrace social history, you have to embrace geology, you have to embrace art, you have to embrace so many things. Mm. And so he doesn't seem so alien as he does to a lot of people who like a much more contained view of something. Ruskin, unfortunately, had the sort of mind that ranged so very, very widely he believed everything connects, which makes it even more complicated. Yeah, you can't John... divide it into geology no. or, or archaeology or architecture or social um, reform, because he was a great social reformer. Quite. But he saw it all connected. He it... thought that looking at nature gave a perspective and that, that nature and man sort of worked in balance, balance. balance and, yes. and a sort of symbiotic relationship in some ways. And he fought for green belts, he fought for clean air, very much against industrialisation, not just because of the pollution, but also because he thought it promoted greed and polluted people. Amazing. And this is really at the bottom of the UNESCO's World Heritage Site designation of a cultural landscape. Well, he indeed, embodies it. Indeed. And, and uh, I mean, that's partially what we will see on, on this walk. Yeah. Well, let's get moving. Okay. Well, we've walked up the lane from the museum. Uh, up to my right, I can see Udale Crags, a striking volcanic escarpment and we're in the shelter of beech trees and beside the tumbling waters of what I would call either Copper Mines Beck or Church Beck. It's a moment we can reflect on the man himself, John Ruskin. Where was he born? He was born in London on the 8th of February 1819, just off Russell Square. But when he was about three, his parents moved, they decided that he would have a much healthier upbringing if he was brought up in the country right. and of course south of the Thames was still countryside and they moved into the Dulwich area um, to Hearn Hill in the first place. His parents were quite elderly when Ruskin was born uh, for the time. They were both approaching 40 when I suppose most of their peers would almost have been expecting to become grandparents. John Ruskin was the only child um, and he was very much cosseted from that early stage. He was very precious to them. It, it must have been obvious for whatever reason that he was going to be the only one. Both of his parents' families were unfortunately riddled with TB. And that, I think, was why they wanted him to be brought up in fresh air and to be accustomed to uh, nature, really. And what drew them to like, somewhere like Coniston? Well, uh, father was a wine importer, Spanish oh. wines and sherries. And yeah. in the summer months, they went travelling around the UK so that father could get orders at the big posting houses and the stately homes that were en route. They tended to go up the Great North Road, we would call it the A1, and then they came, often came down on the western route. Ah, they came south uh, But not always. Sometimes they came the other way. There are accounts of them crossing the sands of Morecambe Bay. Uh, there was a major uh, posting pub called the Waterhead Inn at the head of Coniston Water. I see. And I think Mrs Ruskin and her young son often s sort of were left there whilst father went round presumably to Ambleside to Hawkshead, flogging his 
wives. Wives, yes. Um, and sherries. And sherries. And they would have gone to some of the big houses around the area. And then they'd move on to Keswick. Um, I mean, one of his early memories is being taken by the nurse who was with them in those early days down to Friars Crag. And he was crawling about on that rocky bit amongst all the tree roots and suddenly was absolutely mesmerised by the view across Water up to Borrowdale. You know, he got quite excited when the fells came into view and he fell for it. I mean, it, it was heart and eyes in tune with his brain, I think. And at a very tender age as well, he had that vision. Yes, that's true. And the early tours were around Britain. I think they went into Wales on one occasion. They travelled around, um, they met family in Perth and at one point they brought in a cousin of Ruskin's and they wrote a journey of visits to the Lake District. Um, part in prose, Ruskin was also a budding poet. Right. Father wanted him to be a poet First as good as Byron, only pious. Um, mother, really, who was a fundamentalist, wanted him to go into the church and she rather fancied the idea of him as Archbishop of Canterbury when he grew up. Fabulous. We'll walk a little bit further along the church back. Okay, <laughs> indeed. Well, we've come through the little hand gate uh, off the road. Uh, the signpost says Copper Mines Valley up, up the road, and we're turning where it says Yew Tree Farm. So we're following a footpath beside the wall underneath the great spanning bows oh. of an oak tree. Now, Ruskin was a very keen eye and he's, from an early age, it was a very important. Apparently, when his parents had guests, he was sort of down in the room with them. But he was sitting in a corner and told to be quiet. Not say anything, not interrupt, you know, not sort of make a fuss. <laughs> and he remembers in his autobiography that he learnt really to train his eye by learning the patterns in the carpet and, you know, committing them to his memory. He learnt to see and to record and, I suppose, to begin to think about it all as a result of that. It's, it's remarkable how... Such a, an innocent thing to most of us, the, the notion of actually looking at something, but looking at it, really looking at it, was what he mastered and then carried on throughout his life, in effect. Well, indeed, indeed. I mean, he looked at trees, he looked at leaves, the sort of threads that go through his life, particularly trees. He talks later on about the tree's monument to the leaf. Mm -hmm. um, he sees the trees as a very sort of cooperative being mm -hmm. um, because they all they, they grow in such a way that every leaf gets its own proper share of moisture and sunlight and fresh air and all the rest of it and they all prosper they don't compete and later on when Ruskin turned to social thinking he thought that people, uh, everything should be in cooperation, not in competition. So uh, moving on into his early teenage years, his family, instead of being encased in Britain, they actually started 
on what became known as the Grand Tour, and they, they did their own tours uh, throughout various parts of Europe. Yes, they started going abroad when Ruskin was just entering his teens. He'd been given Samuel Rogers' Italy, a book of poems. It wasn't the poetry so much as the uh, little vignettes at the start and at the end of poems that really attached, uh, attracted his attention. And these were done by J.M.W. Turner, so he got very interested in Turner. Um, his father had been a collector of watercolours. They'd gone to various exhibitions. They saw some Turners. And Ruskin basically sort of directed the family to go in um, Turner's footsteps. Uh, the first trip abroad, uh, they went to Belgium. That was when he was six. They went specifically to see the new memorial on the field of Waterloo then went down the Rhine, and um, this was followed in later years, and I think it was the revelation uh, from approaching Basel that they got glimpses of the snow-covered Alps, Alps sticking up, and, and Ruskin talks about it as if they were the walls of Eden. Yeah. They had a huge, huge impact on him. It was something magical and mystical and wonderful. That's one of his quotes, isn't it, about mountains being the beginning and end of all landscapes? Yes, this was also why he was interested here. He had been amongst the beginnings of geology as a science when he was at Oxford. And he was fascinated when they moved into Coniston with the geology around here because Coniston, the Udale Valley, is on the non-conformity between the Borrowdale volcanics, which are here in the Udale Fells, and the Silurian slates, which are across the, the valley and the other side of the valley. Well, we'll have a little uh, wander a bit further and get a perspective on that. Yes. Marvellous to see the sunshine bursting out up onto the Udale Fells. I've got the umbrella for the microphone. We haven't <laughs> used it yet, but uh, I'm hoping no, we well, won't at all. I, I think when you've got weather like this, everything goes sort of stereo, doesn't it? <laughs> and you see it much more sharply. So the Napoleon Wars were truncated the Grand Tour that Ruskin's family conducted. So what happened then? Well, basically, yes, the Napoleonic Wars meant that artists and other people couldn't really travel across France and the Low Countries to get to Switzerland or to Italy. And this was true of the, of the Ruskin family. It did mean that people like Turner travelled the English and Scottish countryside, and, of course, Turner had actually come to Coniston in the late 1790s. So he'd painted here at Coniston, for yes, example? Yes, he had. So uh, what sort of perspectives did he take? Well, he was looking at the fells. Uh, mm -hmm. He painted a picture of a Copper Mines Valley, um, but he doesn't paint it as an industrial site. No. He's got a shepherd and sheep, and it's really a rather romantic landscape. Uh, Turner did a lot of work in the Lake District. He, did, he went to Wales, he went to the Highlands, he spent a lot of time at Petworth with the Egremont family, and they were his major backers. Um, but it was Ruskin who really brought Turner's work and, and abilities to the general public. He was very annoyed by the way that Turner's work was sort of dismissed at the Royal Academy and so forth. He was a Royal Academician. And when he was 24, he published 
something called Modern Painters, the first volume of Modern Painters, Mm -hmm. which basically told the British public that one of the greatest painters ever was alive and kicking in their midst and they hadn't bothered to notice. He went to university. Now, I come from Oxfordshire, but I didn't go to university, but John Ruskin did. Yes, he did. And his father paid for him to go as a gentleman scholar to Oxford, uh, to Christchurch. In those days, you didn't take a degree as you do today. You didn't have a specific subject. It was much more wide-ranging than that. It involved the classics, it involved literature, it involved a certain amount of mathematics. But there were professors like professors of geology, mm-hmm. you know, who, who sort of opened eyes in other directions. The trouble was that uh, towards the end of his second year, he started spitting blood. His parents panicked because obviously that was a sign of TB and that was really the excuse for about 18 months touring Europe, uh, south of France and Italy, sort of warm, dry places, which was supposed to be a good cure for TB. He went back some years later and he got an honorary double fourth because they didn't really know what to give him. (laughs) Nice little footbridge there, uh, Vicky. We're in the uh, Coppice Woodland here, and above us you can see the Borrowdale Volcanic Escarpment of Udale Crags. In fact, I can just see a yew tree immediately to our left as but well. There are a few in this wood. I mean, there can be many, many hundreds of years. Some of them are thousands of years old. Right. I'm thinking back to your comment about John Ruskin being at Oxford, and he became a professor, but he had lots of tensions by the time he got to there in his life, Um, one being his father's capitalism and the other being, of course, the religious tension. Yes, he was appointed the first Slade Professor of Fine Art at Oxford. You might think that that was about art history, art criticism. He spanned a much wider area than that. Um, He was keen that his students should understand the a better use of their energy. He disapproved of cricket and and rugby and and indeed uh, flogging holes in the river, I think it was put as. (laughs) And he thought that they could do something much more constructive for the populace, socially constructive for others. So one of the things that he did was to set up this Hinksy Road um, scheme, which was basically trying to tidy up a road that flooded and got stagnant and had created cholera problems. So he he got some of these lads to go and help. One was his, uh, later his ADC, WG Collingwood. Another was Rawnsley, one of the founders of the National Trust. A third, would you believe, was Oscar Wilde. Um, But Ruskin was torn because he realised that he'd had a lot of privilege because of his father's success in business, and he began to see his father as a capitalist. There's no evidence that Ruskin was ever in contact with Marx, but he was certainly in contact with Engels. Mm. And, of course, he was also having religious problems. Both parents, mother particularly, was an out-and-out fundamentalist and brought him up on the literal truth of the Bible. And, of course, with his interest in geology, he realised that it wasn't quite so simple as that. He came to take the first chapter of Genesis as a sort of parable. He uh, did have difficulty with their religious attitude and their belief in the 
strict truth of the Bible. He also had difficulties because he doesn't really think that government is being fair to all the populace. No. Um, Ruskin is promoting cooperation rather than uh, any sort of conflict. Social cohesion was more interesting. Yes, he wanted that, and he came up with all the ideas that in due course underpinned the welfare state. Universal education, education of girls, which was terribly radical How at radical the time. He wanted also to have a sort of universal health service. He also believed that history informed the present and the future and that it was fatal not to learn from history. I mean, in the foreword to the Stones of Venice, he talks about the fall of various empires, um, the Greek, um, the Roman, Venice, and sort of raises questions about the British Empire, which, of course, he was in the middle of. Quite. Um, you know, he, ha he was terribly far-seeing in all sorts of ways. Politically, uh, when he was asked, Ruskin said, first of all, that he was a Tory of the old school, like his father before him. He's talking about the Tory reformers who were, were more radical than the Whigs at, at that time. And he also went on to say that he was a, a, a redder-than-red communist. And, of course, the other tension that one should mention is, is the fact he got married to Effie. And that wasn't a marriage made in heaven at all because she really wasn't suited to him. That's true. She was forced into marriage by her parents because father had speculated badly on railway shares and they were in a dire state. They saw the Ruskin family as a meal ticket. <laughs> Ruskin thought that she was in love with him and was shattered to find that she wasn't. Um, she was looking for escape and wanted sort of parties and society in a way that Ruskin sort of abhorred. And it just didn't work. Mm. Um, he did his best to help her Find a to suitor. A, another suitor, and that turned out to be John Everett Millet, the pre-Raphaelite yes. painter, who was a protégé of Ruskin's. Um, but, of course, at that time, there were huge differences between Scottish and English marriage law. Mm. Um, neither had divorce as such. Ruskin was actually quite chivalrous, and the, the easy way out, as followed by Henry VIII and various popes, went for a, an annulment of the, of the marriage. What should have been a private tragedy became a great scandal because Ruskin had made many enemies with his views on industrialisation and capitalism yeah. and so on. And his enemies leapt onto it and stirred it up into a great scandal. It's absolutely gorgeous coming along here, Vicky. This woodland, I would imagine it's a bluebell woodland, it's time. And there's a moment here where I can get an open view to my right and I can see an erratic standing there. That's a sign of the glaciation. And beyond that, just before the road, there's what looks like a bridge abutment, but I fancy that's a lime kiln. If that's so, what does that tell us? Well, we're on a band of what used to be known as Coniston limestone, which is much earlier than the limestone that goes around the edges of the Lake District. Mm -hmm. And it goes from here across behind Tarn House to the Drunken Duck. Well, absolutely. And then no, across hot. Windermere, mm -hmm. and there's a lime kiln on the A591 just before the turn up to the Samling Hotel after Waterhead. Right. And, and then it goes there. through the woodland and Troutbeck and emerges at Limefit's caravan and camping site and then goes up, um, I think, into the Kentmere Valley somewhere. Is that so?
That was a lovely passage we'd just been along, Vic. We came out of the coppice woodland. We crossed the Tilberthwaite Road. There was uh, Herb Meadows, uh, the woodland, and Homefell and Wetherlam beyond. So you've got a dramatic setting. And we've come up to Yew Tree Farm. This is belonging to the National Trust, doesn't it? Yes, it's one of the farms that Beatrix Potter bought from the Marshall Estate at Monk Coniston. She kept the farms uh, and left them to the National Trust on her death because by then she got absolutely in love with the Herdwicks and this was Herdwick land. Absolutely, and we've been past Herdwicks to get here. Well, I think most people will see some Herdwicks on this, this route, yes. Now, the interesting thing, I think, and I, th- and I understand this is true about John Ruskin, he really took to what we now call vernacular, the local, local materials, and you've got a slate roof there, probably from Tilberthwaite. Yeah. Uh, and the walls, definitely local stone, the little garth in front of it, the enclosure, beautiful dry stone walls coated in moss. And, and there's a porch around there as well, isn't there? Yes, yeah. and there's two slates making the top of the porch on that bit on that the we're front. looking at at yeah, the moment. On, on the, but, the east face. Yeah, Ruskin was, uh, one of his earliest written pieces was the, the poetry of architecture. And he was writing about what we would call vernacular architecture, truth to local materials, truth to local building practices, getting information from how things have been sited, whether it was on the spring line or in shelter, mm-hmm. um, that these houses were built really for uh, shelter and protection rather than for the view. Ruskin really tuned into the vernacular. What was so special to him, do you feel? Well, I think it was the way that things looked as if they belonged in a particular landscape. He was writing about Switzerland and the chalets as well as what he saw here um, and some of the buildings in Scotland as well. And it was just that they looked as if they belonged. It looked as if they'd grown out of the landscape. Mm. And they were also buildings that worked and that was very important to him. That's why in the 20th century there were really sort of two schools of, of architecture which in a sense were inspired by him. Most obviously the Bauhaus in Germany, which was about buildings that work, um, but also the much more romantic interpretation of fitness to place and local materials, which is Frank Lloyd Wright and buildings such as Falling Waters and so on. Mm. They might have used some modern materials, but they were trying to use what was there, which of course made it much more worthwhile economically, use what's on the spot. When you look at the barn adjacent to it, and if you go to Town End at Troutbeck, you've got a wonderful example of a bank barn. This one has got a spinning gallery. Yes. and What was uh, that about? Well, um, there's debate about that, but uh, one of the stories, I think perpetuated by Wordsworth more than anybody, was that in the summer months people would go and sit on that gallery and they'd spin their wool, their Herdwick wool here, um, with a, a, a distaff and a spindle. Apparently it's easier to spin wool or cotton or any uh, fibre in a dampish atmosphere, which, um, of course, we often have in this part of the world. <laughs> no wonder we've got the um, And it's why, later on, there was a massive woolen industry based in Kendal. Some people think that the galleries were an early form of landing, if you like to put yeah. it like that. But it was somewhere also to uh, display the goods. There were merchants coming round to these farms to buy raw wool, spun wool, some cloth... Herdwick tweed was basically the working 
clothing of much of Western Europe. And you've got here, uh, Ruskin really tuned into this use of local materials. You mentioned to me off mic about the Mechanics Institute. Yes, well, uh, Ruskin was heavily involved with the development of Coniston Mechanics Institute. We think it probably goes back to the 1830s. Mm -hmm. Um, The Mechanics Institute movement began in Scotland in the 1820s, and it was, I suppose, a form of education for people who'd left school, particularly men who'd left school, by the age of eight or nine or ten. gave them more options. Some of the mechanics institutes, like the one in Manchester, the one in Leeds, developed into Manchester University and Leeds University. They were very important to the development of education and learning. And Ruskin, and with the help of his ADC, as he called him, Collingwood, did a lot to widen uh, people's expectations and horizons. There were drawing classes, there were painting classes, there was the wood carving school, there was the repousse metalwork. It was, a, a, I suppose, a version of the arts and crafts movement. But in Ruskin's eyes, it was going back to the vernacular period when a lot of these farms had beautiful carved panelling and, mm. and, and furniture, built-in furniture. Because you were building with free stone and without mortar in the early days, to draft-proof the house, you had wooden panelling on the inside. Mm. It didn't matter so much for the farm buildings because the heat from the animals was keeping it warm Mm. and keeping them warm you know and and they were using what was to hand Mm. and I mean that that that's about air miles for food and uh, in our day and 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 getting buying local where you can um you know it's a much more sustainable much greener way of living yeah I can imagine uh, Ruskin would not have been into Ikea or all this sort of pre no I think he thought people should make things that they needed they knew what they needed what would fit in a, a probably not very square house could be made to measure and it would fulfill its purpose it was useful but it would also if they decorated it a bit be attractive it would be beautiful and rather than sort of going to the big stores uh, like Liberty's or some of the other London stores uh, and William Morris's own outlets uh, when the stuff was being produced commercially, because it was fairly small runs, it was very expensive. But it was perfectly possible for people to make some of it themselves and take pride in their craftsmanship. And Ruskin thought people were much happier when they were making something. Yes. And I think what Ruskin was hoping with the classes in the Mechanics Institute was that a young couple would furnish the home. Right, we'll stop there and we'll move along a little bit further. It's fabulous. Gosh, it's by the road. We've been had to walk along a bit of the road. It's a bit unfortunate. But anyway, we're opposite High Udale Farm, uh, which is famous for its Herdwick sheep, I gather. Well, it was. Um, a very famous breeder of Herdwicks called Johnny Burkett was here for many, many years. And he actually welcomed the Queen uh, on one of her visits to the Lake District. And she came to meet him and meet some of his Herdwicks as well. And Vicky, you pointed out to me, and I hadn't glanced at it, my eyes went straight to the farmhouse, but opposite, through a kissing gate, uh, there are a line of yew trees, very appropriate to yew tree farm and, and high yew dale, and 
a line of stone flags. Now, there's a bit of a story here, I think. Yes, I was brought up on a farm in Hawkshead and there was a boundary dispute and my late father had a friend whose cousin was working in the Vatican Library in Rome and he said, oh, I think I can find some information for you and it turned out that the abbot of Furness Abbey had made his monks go round and create a complete inventory of the Abbey's holdings. Um, They were obviously aware of Henry VIII's designs on the monasteries and their holdings. (laughs) And it was farms, how much stock there was on that farm, how much was in storage. um, Doomsday of its Well, more or less. And and also looking at the field boundaries and the becks and drains. And the slate slab fences in the Hawkshead area were, uh, particularly on our farm, which was what we were looking at, were very clearly marked. Um, the older ones seem to be shaped with a sort of S-bend so that they can be interlocked. Yep. There's about as much underground as there is above <laughs> ground. <laughs> I suppose. But I, I note here there's a bit of a gate post, one of the um, pole gate posts. You'll see it's got three perforations in it, round holes. Square ones, Well, square ones, Sorry, actually, yeah. when you look. Um, and the pole gates were used um, so that you could use... Uh, you'd have round holes in one post and you'd have square holes in the other and you would cut a pole and square off the thicker end and jam it into the square holes and and you would use the the natural rounded side in the round holes and they were used to allow lambs through before their mothers you could take the bottom pole out you could take two poles out as they got a bit bigger but the mothers still couldn't get through and the square holes were because we must remember at that time, and we're going back into the 17th, 18th century, mm. um, cattle had horns, and the cattle could sort of actually turn the, the, the poles round unless they were stopped in some oh, way, hence the square holes. So it's akin to the hog yes, holes? Yes, well, the hog holes are another sort of sign of this. I mean, there are an awful lot of features in the, the walls when you start looking at them. Mm. Um, but the, the, there are other stories connected with these yew trees. We've got some photographs in the museum Museum. Um, at one stage, 1880s, 1890s, they were clipped like topiary. Oh, yes. Um, a touch of the Levens Hall Gardens in uh, Coleridge's perambulation round the lakes. He talks about Coniston being famous for topiary. But I, I imagine, that, you know, they've gone wild since then. Yep, yep. If you want to see this line of uh, yew trees and the flag fence, it's opposite High Yewdale Farm, and we're going to follow the track beyond that. To Low Yewdale. There we are, through the valley. We've escaped from one beautiful meadow to another, and we're in a great bowl in the hills, which is very distinctive of this area, isn't it? Norman Nicholson, who approached this area from from the south, uh, he saw this as a a very special green area, didn't he? Yeah, he calls it Crest Green, I think, somewhere. I think it's in the Lakers. Mm. Um, But it is, you know, it's a very fertile area. Now, Ruskin had a, a, a great sense of the environment. He was an environmentalist in the fact he's 
observed the advance of the Industrial Revolution. Yes, he did travel a lot and he was horrified to see the great spread of the factories and all the rest of it and the pollution that that was causing to rivers and canals, lots of rubbish, but also from the smoke and he got very concerned about it. It hit home when he settled at Brantwood because sometimes in his diary he notes that when the wind was coming from the southwest, Barrow and uh, Furness. Uh, well, Barrow and Furness uh, and, and places south, I suppose, as well. <laughs> yeah. um, his roses in the garden at Brantwood would look very browned and sort of tatty looking the next morning, you know, if there was rain involved as well. And I suppose in our terms, he was noticing the effects of what we would call acid rain. The railways came into this as well because he could see them belching out clouds of black smoke from the funnels on the, on the engines. Yes, they saved him many weeks of travel if he was going to his beloved Switzerland. Yes, it meant that steamships could get him across the channel much more quickly than the sailboats because he had to wait for the right wind. It freed you of, of some of the hazards of nature, but it was doing a lot of harm to nature. And now we see that in much more stark relief, Extinction Rebellion and so forth, with climate change and so on. He can be carried forward as an early observer of that. Uh... He was a visual thinker. Mm. He noticed what was happening and then he started thinking, well, why? What's the reason? What's caused it? Mm. And he was also concerned about the social impact of all this. In the towns, the water supplies were... Um, always getting polluted by sort of overflows of sanitation and rubbish and all the rest of it. Um, and he thought that people were living in very unhygienic, uh, unsanitary places. Domestic home. And homes. working in insanitary yes. conditions. People were doing boring jobs, pulling a lever or stamping mm. something all day. It was totally different to his ideas of people making things for their own needs and, 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 and taking pride in them. Yeah, taking reward from it uh, rather than um, mechanical. You know, and he thought it was not the right way for people to live. So he moved from his art. In one way, he was, he was one of the last romantics, but it turned into a, a huge concern for humanity and how um, uh, the social system could be reformed, how um, the economy could be changed. A lot of matters that are still very current today. Mm. Smell the wonderful perfume from those plants. I don't know what plants they are, well, I but... I think it's probably those roses. Roses there. Roses. What, we're coming into Low Udale. This is Low Udale. And this is uh, a significant place. Was it connected with Birchick's Potter? Well, yes, um, when the marshals sold up the Monk Coniston estate, she bought a lot of the land. It's rather intriguing because they live so close, uh, Brantwood for Ruskin and uh, Sorry for Beatrice Potter. Do you think they ever met? I doubt it because I don't think Ruskin was really receiving visitors by the time Beatrix Potter s settled in Sorry. I mean, I do think it's significant that this area of High Furnace is the sort of crucible of an awful lot that happened. You know, you had Wordsworth at Hawkshead Grammar School, mm -hmm. you had Ruskin living on the eastern shore of Coniston Water. At that time, part of the Hawkshead Parish. You later on had uh, Canon Rawnsley, not 
canonised at that point. Um, he was the curate at Ray. Right. He, of course, had been a student of Ruskin's. And you also had Beatrix Potter, who was a major benefactor to the Fledgling National Trust. Another intriguing person was uh, Collingwood, who was um, his aide-de-camp, a great friend and assistant of his, uh, who was connected with this low Udale farm. Well, he was heavily connected with Coniston Full Stop. Right. But um, at a later stage, after Ruskin's death, um, Collingwood, who founded the Lake Artists Society, that started here in Coniston. Um, he also had a lot of connections with other local historians, including somebody called Cyril Ransom, who produced a son called Arthur Ransom. Never heard of him. <laughs> uh, and Arthur Ransom definitely spent at least one summer here <laughs> at Low Udale. W.G. Collingwood met the young Arthur Ransom. Cyril had died quite young and the young Arthur Ransom was sort of somewhat lost and the Collingwood family semi-adopted him. Ransom in due course proposed to both of uh, Collingwood's two elder daughters, uh, Dora and Barbara, um, at least twice and they both turned him down and in 1928 Dora, by then married to somebody called Ernest Altoonian, came back. The Altoonians thought it would be great if their children learnt to sail on Coniston water. So Ransom and Altoonian went off to Peel Island at Barrow and bought two um, seagoing uh, dinghies. One was named Swallow after a swallow that they'd all learned to sail in themselves. And Ransom was having a sort of midlife crisis at the time. Um, the Manchester Guardian wanted him to become their overseas correspondent. Uh, he didn't want that. He'd always wanted to be an author. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically watching these children learn to sail on Coniston Water and their adventures inspired him to write what became Swallows and Amazons. These stories roll and roll. Yeah, I'm fascinated by all these connections. I appreciate that they rather muddle up the story that we're trying to tell. It goes off in different loops and, and <laughs> <laughs> byways, which um, do tend to muddle things. It's not haywire at all. It's well, brilliant. We walked a wonderful little section in a, a lane on what is actually the Cumbria Way from that farm. And I noticed in the bedrock the grooves in it. This is a, a significant old track, is it? Yes, I think so. I think it was how the slate was taken from uh, Tilberthwaite, particularly, and the back mm -hmm. of Weatherlam and so forth, uh, to the head of Coniston Water, where it would have been put on barges. And presumably it was transported by the look of the grooves on carts and or sleds, which would both have been iron shod. Right, and you've got a majestic view here back to the Udell uh, escarpment there and, and that white gill, you can see it tumbling down. I notice we've got this uh, beach hedge flanking the Cumbria Way here. Why do you think it's here? I 
guess that in the early days this was open field and the track didn't have anything to either side but they possibly thought from the point of view of protecting the ewes in bad weather to have some sort of protection would be a good idea mm. and a hedge would be quicker than walling it Quite. Um, but and you can tell the age of it like you can tell the age of a wall by the number of inhabitants that are taking cover in it oh, yeah. you can here with a different variety of plants that are there you've got oak you've got sloes you've got quite a lot of different flowers in here there was some hawthorn i can't see any just mm. at the moment there's honeysuckle in it yeah Mountain ash, rowan, blackberries in it as well. As birds come along, they drop the seeds over a period of time. Yeah, and, 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 and there's vetch and there's tormental as well as the buttercups. The story is that when Ruskin was out walking and exploring the area, if he met some of the local children whom he knew from the school, he would um, particularly give the girls a quiz about the wildflowers because he'd been teaching them the country names, you know, like Milkmaid and Buttercup and all the rest of it, and then started more ambitiously to teach them the Latin names. So they get a quiz, and if, if they did well, they would end up with, you know, a penny or two. Buy yourself a little treat. Amazing. OK, we'll move on a little bit further. We'll get to Boone Crag. Well, having come through Boone Crag, which has a spinning gallery, I notice, if you look back, obscure behind the hedge, uh, and there's also got bee bowls in a wall just below the house. Uh, can you explain what a bee bowl was? Well, basically, in the days before we had the American wooden hives that everybody recognises as a beehive now, um, people kept bees in straw skeps, straw rope twisted round and make a sort of beehive shape and they had to be protected from the weather because they would rot so they made these alcoves in walls before we got sugar imported from the caribbean mm -hmm. uh, honey was the sweetener i mean it was also used to make various drinks by the monks so you kept bees but the bees wouldn't survive unless they had some protection yeah. so the bee bowls kept the skeps dry and at water yeet further south of coniston and in the lyth valley you see a lot of bee bowls and you also see at water yeet a bee house um, which is a sort of built-in alcove where you could put a number of skeps to right. overwinter because right. you didn't you couldn't afford to lose your queens Vicky, you've brought me to the shores of Coniston Water, branching off the, that lovely path that runs beside the main road. We saw the Coniston Rambler bus come by, I noticed. Uh, we veered off. We're on a, quite a broad shore, like we're on a beach, and we can look across the lake to the wooded banks rising up on the east side of the lake, and the sun is beaming on Brandwood, which is quite a moment on our journey because we've covered so many things but what we've never said is where, where he lived yeah. or why he came to live there and when so how come he chose to live there well basically he was tied until both his parents had died and he decided he wanted to sort of break free of london and he'd always had this passion for the lake district and the then owner of Brantwood, who was a great radical, 
was about to um, get the hell out of it and go to the States. And Ruskin, of course, from his early visits, you know, in infancy, Mm -hmm. staying at the old uh, Waterhead Inn, knew precisely the situation of Brantwood. And he moved in in 1872. It became his main residence. For the first 20 years, he was still heavily involved at Oxford. He resigned his professorship because he was furious that they were taking on vis-a-vis-section. He was also heavily involved at Brantwood in developing the gardens Mm. and coming up with ideas about how the moorland up above, which if you look across above the the deciduous trees, you can see where there's been quite a lot of clear felling. And he had various ideas of sort of growing bilberries and other things as a sort of crop. Um, because he was concerned about the plight of the fell farmers and the fact that they had to run a sort of sequence of different jobs in order to cope. And he got very heavily involved in the village. Brantwood became a sort of laboratory for his environmental ideas. He was concerned about the greed for water and he dammed various of the becks. He liked the sound of trickling water in little waterfalls. <laughs> but he was trying to conserve water. He built an ice house, not just to protect their own food at Brantwood, but also if people got a fever in Coniston, there was ice available to cool isn't them that, down. Isn't he entertained quite a lot of people. Uh, I mean, Gladstone visited him, Darwin visited him, um, but he had successive fits of uh, mental illness. Mm. Nobody's quite sure, but the latest thinking seems to be that it was a side effect of the TB that, had, uh, that he was badly affected with. And they think that worsened as he got older. Oh. But his grandfather and his father were not exactly bipolar, but they could be very euphoric or they could be terribly depressed. And and Ruskin was euphoric when he'd finished one of his great books, but then would sort of go into a certain depression and it would take him quite a while to get going again. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there might have been that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, He was treated by the Hawkshead doctor, Dr Parsons, who was treating him with chloral as a sort of pacifying drug. And I don't think either the doctor or Ruskin knew how addictive it was. And certainly in the last decade, he was nowhere near as active as he had been. Um, When Ruskin died, um, he died on the 20th of January uh, 1900 of influenza. And he'd requested in his will that if he died when he was at Brantwood, he wanted to be buried here in Coniston. If he died when he was in London, he wanted to be buried with his parents who were in the churchyard at Shirley, outside Croydon. So he is buried here in Coniston, and one of the last things we'll do is, is show you Ruskin's grave in the churchyard. So we'll make a point of going there now. Well, we can tell we're in a community. There's all sorts of sands here. We're in the middle of Coniston in St Andrew's churchyard, and... Uh, There's a hum in the background. Obviously, somebody's mowing a lawn or something. Anyway, we're standing next to an array of graves, all associated, but most focal is the one to John Ruskin himself, who died in 1900. It's very iconic as a gravestone. Could you explain it a little bit to us, Vicky? Well, it was designed by W.G. Collingwood, who keeps coming in and out of this story, as a celebration of Ruskin's life and work. Mm -hmm. Um, It was designed deliberately as a cross, Mm 
and on this side, the east-facing side, uh, starting from the bottom, you've got Apollo with his lyre to symbolise Ruskin's poetry. Mm-hmm. And then um, you'll notice that everything's linked with an interlace pattern because Ruskin believed everything linked. So you go up to an artist in an alpine setting with the sun and everything. Right. And then you have the Lion of Venice for the stones of Venice. And he also wrote another book called The Seven Lamps of Architecture, which is the top motif. Thanks. Down this uh, south side... Some of the things that Ruskin loved, you've got the rose, you've got the robin, honeysuckle, you've got a kingfisher, you've got a red squirrel. The funeral itself attracted huge concern and interest from around the country. At the time, people thought of Ruskin as the greatest Victorian after the Queen herself. Right. I mean, they were born in the same year of 1819. She slightly outlived him, but not by very much. Mm -hmm. And he was a sort of iconic figure at the time. Um, There was a petition that he should be buried in Westminster Abbey, you know, where most of our greats Mm -hmm. of different sorts and kinds are Mm -hmm. but the only bit really of his will that the seven seemed to have obeyed to the letter was that if he died at Brantwood he was to be buried here in Coniston apparently on the day he died of the influenza there was the most incredible sunset and one of Joan's children said to her well, don't fret, the gates of heaven are opening for him, really? which was rather lovely. Now, having seen um, some of his paintings, early paintings, he was very good at depicting such scenes. Absolutely. And, and then, unfortunately, on the day of the funeral, it was belting down. The heavens actually opened. And there's a story that there were two small boys in the dug grave bailing it out, <laughs> you know, so that they Goodness. could put the coffin in. Um, Ruskin had lain in state in the church, Uh, for a couple of days. Um, We've got the funeral pall, but you can't see it in any of the photographs or the drawings because it was absolutely smothered in floral tributes. It's said that they had to put a number of extra carriages on the train to Coniston to bring all these floral tributes to Coniston. Staggering, isn't it? Um, And the array of people who would come here? Well, a mass of different people came. I know one of the pallbearers was Gordon Wordsworth, um, grandson of William Wordsworth, and there was a host of clerics, mm. all sort of vying for position, including uh, Rawnsley, of course. <laughs> um, and the church was full. I think the churchyard was full, despite the weather. People came from all over to pay tribute to him. Gosh, it's an amazing time, and... Uh his legacy there are things that you could bring to light well there are a number of things i mean here in the village the coniston mechanics institute is still going strong collingwood developed the lake artist society exhibitions there Mm -hmm. when coniston got the new secondary school in 1960 it was decided to call it John Ruskin School, after guess whom. Um, so that's the sort of local legacy. Also, I think the village's attitude, you know, a sort of can-do approach often. Yes. But on a much wider scale, uh, there was a beautiful piece from Tolstoy. Tolstoy said that he was one of the greatest minds of the 19th century and everybody would think what he had thought in due course. You know, that was the influence. Later on, Gandhi, who was working as a, a lawyer in South Africa, 
was uh, going on a lengthy rail trip in South Africa. A friend gave him a copy of Ruskin's Unto This Last, and he was so moved by that that he went back to India to fight for independence, and he was looking at passive resistance. That was something that Martin Luther King picked up. Um, I'd love to know who wrote JFK's acceptance speech ask not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country exactly. and this comes back to Ruskin talking about um, the tree's monument to the leaf and the, the ideas he had about working in cooperation rather than in conflict, conflict. In, in all of that Vicky we have a, a man of any age who happened to choose Coniston, uh, I have to thank you hugely for your contribution to this. It's opened my mind wonderfully to a man who I only slightly knew. Well, it's been a pleasure, and we've only skimmed the surface, I'm ashamed to say. journey's end and we are back at the museum the Ruskin Museum in Coniston the uh, Ruskin Museum here is is fabulous isn't it we had a little look around earlier on in huh. Vicky's company yes indeed great great place to come yeah it's indeed uh, Vicky gave us a little look around before we started and uh, particularly if you've got Vicky with you but certainly if you've learnt a little bit about Ruskin's before you've come it is a remarkable place to get a sense of the breadth uh, of Ruskin. He really had eyes to see, cared about people and the environment and everything. We've probably learned so much about it today. For me, two highlights. First one was the walk, which actually, I mean, I tend to, like you often, I think, Mark, head for the high fells, but the low pastoral lands around here are lovely, and some of the old lanes there with the hedges around. Yeah, it's fabulous a, walking. It's fabulous walking. It's, the Cumbria Way goes through and yes, takes advantage of it. Right. It's a valley that's not well known, quite frankly. It's not, is it? Given it's so close to this centre and you get the crowds coming down to Coniston at the weekend. But but no, those little back lanes and those beautiful farms. Oh, wow. Absolutely. If you want to come and enjoy the peace and greenness and the interrelationship of crags to valley and to the lake, just a gentle wander up to Udale, absolutely fabulous. Well worth it. And the second thing that uh, I suppose um, surprised me to some extent, we always think of Wordsworth, don't we, and Beatrix Potter. And somewhere else in your peripheral vision, you know Ruskin's there, but, I mean, he's at the epicentre of almost everything, isn't he? Uh, He knows Wordsworth and the Collingwood connection, the Rawnsley connection, the Turner connection. It's extraordinary. What a man. Uh, Oh yeah, No questions. No questions at all. He he was uh, a man of any age. He did influence a a great deal that occurred subsequently, caring for landscapes, caring for communities and healthy environments. They all stem from this man. He was well ahead of his time, wasn't he? Two centuries ahead of the kind of things that we're getting our heads round now uh, politically and as you say in terms of climate change and pollution well he's certainly whetted my appetite to find out more mark what have we got coming up in the next few country strides we've got a summer 
bursting with uh, <laughs> fantastic walks. Oh, indeed. I'll be walking a lot anyway, but we'll be doing some interesting ones. We actually have a climate change one. Uh, Amy Bray, who's doing this Another Wainwright Challenge on the 31st of August, uh, where people are going to the tops of every mountain in the Lake District and doing something special to highlight the concerns of climate change. But we'll have a conversation with her and with Sir Martin Holgate, uh, who is a, a scientific perspective on it. That's one thing we want to cover. Another one uh, is the Dales Way, which is 50 years old this year, and Colin Speakman from Ilkley was the man who actually designed it, and he's going to take us on a walk from Dent Station down to the village of Dent, and he'll probably talk about somebody else that Ruskin will have had a great deal of influence from, uh, Adam Sedgwick. Uh, Ah, the father of geology. Father, one, of, one of them, uh, William Smith was the father, known as the father, but certainly... Uh, a stepfather. Stepfather, probably, and, and, and Charles Darwin was influenced as well by uh, Sedgwick. So we'll have that. Um, uh, and, and some more. Oh, and some more, indeed. So that's a summer of podcasts coming up from the team here at Countrystride. A reminder, as ever, that you can download all the past episodes at www.countrystride.co.uk. You can get in touch with us via our social media channels at Countrystride1. And if you want to get in contact with us at any time, please do so via the website or via social media. We always love to hear from you about either your thoughts on the podcast or... Uh, any of you, the holidays or walks that you have up here in the Lake District in Cumbria. But from now, from Coniston and from the home of John Ruskin, we're saying goodbye for now. Goodbye. Goodbye.